Chinese people soon allowed to travel overseas again, despite COVID-19 infections sweeping across the nation. Global fears over whether China's COVID-19 outbreak will spawn new variants. But how likely is it? An expert breaks it down. Uh, it's a big incubation hub in China. Unusually high death rates for alumni of two top Chinese universities, one of them known as the birthplace of the Chinese Communist Party. A die-hard China optimist seemingly changing his stance. We look at why. Taiwan extending its compulsory military service for male citizens. And Japan preparing for possible war. The nation planning to deploy a missile defense unit on an island near Taiwan. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Chinese citizens will soon be allowed to leave the country again. That's after Beijing has kept borders tightly closed for nearly three years. The change comes as an unprecedented COVID-19 outbreak sweeps through the country. According to a leaked document from Chinese authorities, more than 200 million have been infected. China State Council said on Monday that starting January 8, 2023, Chinese residents will be able to travel outside China. Flight tickets out of the country have seen a massive spike since the news broke, with bookings jumping more than threefold from the day before. That's according to data from travel company Trip.com Group. One Beijing resident gave his reaction. I was quite excited when I heard the news. It was unexpected. I was looking forward to it. The stock market also opened higher on Tuesday after news broke about the reopening. On top of opening up borders, the country is also dropping quarantine requirements for incoming travelers. That says COVID-19 sweeps through the country, with multiple regions reporting daily infections in the hundreds of thousands. Hospitals are packed. Funeral homes are overwhelmed. Search data indicates that South Korea and Japan are among the top choices for Chinese tourists. But both Japan and India are tightening their border controls for visitors from China. All travelers from mainland China and those who have traveled to mainland China within the last seven days will be subject to testing upon entry. When the COVID-19 pandemic first broke out in Wuhan about three years ago, the city saw a major death toll. Due to the Chinese regime's history of underreporting health data, the true toll remains unclear. At the time, authorities halted domestic flights to and from Wuhan, the epicenter of the outbreak. But millions of Chinese citizens were still traveling abroad, unknowingly carrying the virus with them. The CCP virus, which causes COVID-19, is wrecking havoc in China. Every day, millions are getting infected. Can this wave be contained within Chinese borders, or will it spill out around the globe? An expert explains. The world is going on alert again. The World Health Organization saying it's very concerned about severe COVID-19 infections reported across China right now. And Washington, fearing China's COVID-19 tsunami could spark dangerous new variants, posing a threat to people everywhere. Just how bad is the situation? It's a big incubation hub in China. Former U.S. Army microbiologist Sean Lin says China is facing a very bad season to open up. That's because three viruses are present there. Flu, RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus, and COVID-19. 
all of them having plunged the country into a winter of illness. On top of that, the illness's burden falls on 1.4 billion vulnerable Chinese people because of immunity gaps, a result of prolonged lockdowns. Now you give these huge population, very, very immune-dampened population to the virus. So the virus have better chance to generate mutants. They have higher pathogenicity. Beyond that, in China, another sub-variant of COVID-19 may already be spreading alongside the Omicron variant. Cases of lung infection and severe pneumonia have been reported among COVID-19 patients in China. The Omicron variant usually doesn't cause these symptoms. It's known for only weakly attacking the lungs. I cannot doubt it's all because of the Omicron. We didn't see any sequence, so there's no data to verify at this moment. The whole world should not wait for Chinese government to be transparent. All the diplomatic pressure should put on China to provide the samples, to provide these uh, important information to the world on a timely base. Lin says China has stopped providing regular sequencing data since the middle of 2020, and official data only registered a handful of new COVID-19 deaths this month. The key is how many people are hospitalized, how many are in ICU, and how many people die. This is the most critical information because it gives you the information, the real information about the pathogenicity of the virus. That's the whole world are worrying about. Earlier this month, Beijing suddenly rolled back its strict antivirus rules, known as the Zero COVID-19 policy. Now across many Chinese cities, employees are told to keep working, even if they're infected with COVID-19. The sudden U-turn has sparked speculation that China is embracing a new phase and attempting to live with the virus. A stage marked by low, controlled infection numbers that the majority of other nations are already seeing. But Sean says it might be a totally different story for China. The Chinese government's overall strategy may seems to be uh, try any means to push the population uh, get infected quickly and then get a huge herd immunity in a very short period of time. It sounds totally crazy, uh, but it may happen. Uh, it may happen to the Chinese Communist Party. According to Lin, the virus outbreak in Beijing is totally unprecedented describing the virus surge as an atomic bomb explosion. Sean says it's strange since virus spread usually takes time. He says the situation may be tied to communist leader Xi Jinping's political goals. That's ahead of next year's National People's Congress, the most important Communist Party meeting of the year. He won his whole team to take over uh, in March 2023. It's a huge gambling. He's betting on this. He's betting the Chinese population can really get infected. Even though a lot of people will die, uh, it doesn't matter to Xi Jinping. He just wonder on this issue to quickly get over. Lin warns that within two weeks, China's population will reach a very high percentage of COVID-19 infections, adding that at this point, it's too late for vaccinations to help in the short term. People in China must rely on their own natural immunity now. At the same time, China's health officials say the potential for new COVID-19 mutations is unlikely. Two of China's most renowned universities are suffering an unusually big loss. Their teachers and professors are passing away. One of the universities is considered the birthplace of the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. The other one is known for its high-profile alumni, including the current and former CCP leaders. Twelve professors from Beijing University died this month. That's according to notices put out by the school. Three of the university's retired professors passed away on December 22nd alone.
According to its website, the university maintains strong links to the Chinese Communist Party. The first group of communists and Marxists in China were educated there. The second school is called Tsinghua University. The death toll for its retired professors totaled 87 in just the last four months of this year, double the figure from the same period last year. This university also holds an important place in the CCP's recent history. Most of China's top leaders over the past decades are alumni, including current Chinese leader Xi Jinping and former leader Hu Jintao. The CCP leader before Hu Jintao did not attend the school, but his prime minister did. It's unclear if the deceased persons tested positive for COVID-19 or if they were even tested for the virus at the time of the death. Most of the death notices list illness as cause of death without any specifics. One notice listed a, quote, heavy cold as the cause. The deceased person was the designer of the 2008 Beijing Paralympic mascot. One peak and three waves. This is the prediction from Wu Chunyong, chief epidemiologist at the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention, about the current COVID-19 outbreak in China. Wu said the first wave would span from mid-December 2022 to mid-January 2023, mainly in cities. The second wave will strike from late January to mid-February 2023, China's top travel season surrounding the Lunar New Year holiday. The third wave is expected from late February to mid-March, when people return to work after the New Year holiday. The peak outbreak is predicted to span three months in total. Earlier this year, Wu also advised Chinese citizens on how to avoid monkeypox. One of his recommendations, having no contact with foreigners. Chinese authorities had already announced the first case of monkeypox in China before he gave the warning. The initial infection case was said to have originated outside China. Due to the Chinese regime's history of underreporting and covering up health data, it's unclear if that case was actually the first discovered in the country. One of America's diehard China optimists seems to be changing his tune toward China. Stephen Roach, a Yale senior fellow and former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia, is one of the world's leading economic experts on Asia. Not long ago, he was still a strong supporter for investing in China. But now, he says the U.S. and China have already crossed a line and are on the brink of a Cold War. Last week, he published an article titled A China Optimist's Lament. In it, he listed several 2022 wake-up calls for China optimists. For example, China's unlimited partnership with Russia was set before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Chinese leader Xi Jinping's insistence on the zero COVID-19 policy and the switch from focusing on economy to security issues during the 20th Communist Party Congress in October. With media articles circulating, foreign investors are reacting to the Chinese Communist Party's policies and cashing out their gains on Chinese stocks. Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's investment firm, has reduced its holdings of Chinese electric vehicle conglomerate BYD six times in less than four months. It sold off a quarter of its shares in the company. Buffett had bought the more than $230 million BYD shares in 2008. He held the holdings for the past 14 years. Earlier this month, Taiwan's Foxconn Group disclosed that it would sell all of its shares in China's Tsinghua Unigroup to avoid uncertainty with Chinese companies. 
Tsinghua Unit Group is a critical semiconductor or microchip company in China. Stakes in two other Chinese tech giants, Alibaba and Tencent, have also seen heavy sell-offs this year. Taiwan defending itself against China's threat with a new move on Tuesday. Beginning in 2024, Taiwanese men will have to serve one year in the military instead of four months. President Tsai Ing-wen described the decision as incredibly difficult. The expansion of China continues to impact the international order. Taiwan wants to tell the world that between democracy and dictatorship, we firmly believe in democracy. Between war and peace, we insist on peace. Taiwan's mandatory military service was shortened from one year to four months in 2018. The new announcement comes after Taiwan on Monday reported the largest ever Chinese Air Force incursion into the island's air defense identification zone. Taiwan rejects Beijing's sovereignty claims to the island and has never been ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. Taiwan has long faced increasing military, diplomatic and economic threats from China. China has sent near-daily Air Force missions over the island over the past three years. Tsai says the current four-month mandatory military training can no longer suit the needs of Taiwan's defense. Adding the extension was necessary for safeguarding the island's democratic way of life. Japan's Ministry of Defense planning to deploy a missile defense unit near Taiwan. The action part of preparations for a possible war between China and Taiwan. According to Japanese media, the unit will be set up on Yonaguni Island, the country's westernmost island. Earlier this month, Japan unveiled its biggest military buildup since World War II. The $320 billion plan includes buying missiles capable of striking China. This as regional tensions keep rising. Five North Korean drones crossed into South Korea on Monday. The country opened fire, attempting to shoot down the intruders. Now, it's vowing to create a military unit specializing in drones. Here are the details. South Korea scrambled jets and attack helicopters on Monday after it said five North Korean drones crossed into its airspace, calling the incident a clear act of provocation. After firing initial warning shots, Seoul responded by opening fire to try to shoot down Pyongyang's aircraft, according to South Korea's military. Lee Seung-oh is an official with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Our military deployed manned and unmanned reconnaissance assets to areas close to the military demarcation line as well as North Korea to take corresponding measures in response to North Korean drones that violated our airspace. One of the five North Korean drones flew near the South Korean capital. Lee said they were small, about two meters, but didn't say what equipment, if any, they were carrying. The Yonhap News Agency said South Korea's military fired about 100 shots but failed to shoot anything down. The drones the first confirmed to have come from the South's isolated neighbor since 2017, when one was found crashed on a mountain near the border. Relations between the two countries have recently been growing more tense since a new conservative government took over in Seoul and as North Korea presses on with its nuclear and missile programs. China winning entropic warfare in the Pacific Islands. This is the title of an op-ed from Cleo Pascal, a leading expert on China and the Indo-Pacific region. She spoke to Yanya Kellick, host of the American Thought Leaders program, to break down the Chinese Communist Party's strategy in the region. Here's what she had to say. 
if you look at how the Chinese Communist Party conducts its political warfare and targets countries, part of it is entropic warfare. But to get there, um, it helps understand the goal of the Chinese Communist Party uh, is foreign policy. And a core component of that is, and we see it in the Chinese think tanks, comprehensive national power. And the overt stated goal of China is to be number one in the world in terms of comprehensive national power. It's everything we think of, economic and military and all that sort of stuff, but it, it goes down to if you have a rare earth mineral mine in your country, but it's a Chinese company that's mining it, if you have a panda in the zoo, that means that they've got a point off of you for soft power on their ledger. There are two ways of improving your relative ranking. One is kind of the typical American way, which is you work hard and get better. The other is you knock everybody else down. And then in a relative sense, if you've knocked them down, you're doing better than they are. So this explains, for example, why from a comprehensive national power perspective, it is beneficial to the Chinese Communist Party to pump fentanyl into middle America. Mm because it destroys communities, it destroys families. It's a real um, entropic warfare of creating this fragmentation, disintegration, chaos within a target country. Coming up, a closer look at strategically important Pacific Island nations. Some are switching their allegiance from Taiwan to China. Cleo Pascal from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies sheds light on how Beijing persuaded them. Learn more after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Only about a dozen countries have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Others, like the Solomon Islands, switched sides from Taiwan to China in recent years. How did Beijing make that happen? Yanya Kellogg, host of the American Thought Leaders program, sat down with Cleo Pascal, a leading expert on China in the Indo-Pacific region. She details how the Chinese regime is promoting division and buying off the elite in small island nations. Well, bribery, usually, kind of the usual elite capture. So the uh, the Solomon Islands, so this is another thing to kind of understand, is we've forgotten how important the Pacific Islands are strategically. So the Solomon Islands is the home of the Battle of Guadalcanal, for example, which was, which was eight, almost 80 years, just a little bit over 80 years ago this past summer. This was a highly strategic location that the Japanese needed to control if they were to control, for example, Australian access into the region. So the, and the Americans needed to control it if they're going to push back Japanese ability to interdict Western or anti-bad guys uh, behavior. So that movement was very closely studied by the Chinese. And they learned from Japanese movements and American counter movements in the Pacific, which islands and locations are strategic, where, where you have to hold, where, where the deep water ports are. And they're trying to emplace in those Japanese and American locations through political warfare what was bought in blood 
by uh, the Americans during the liberation of the region. China got them just by buying off the right people. At that 80th commemoration of the Battle of Guadalcanal, the America sent, for example, the, the daughter of John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy was his uh, boat sank, was torpedoed during the battle, and his life was saved by two Solomon Islanders. And so his daughter, who's an ambassador to Australia, came up for the commemoration. The prime minister of the Solomon Islands wasn't there because he's so deep in China's pocket that he didn't want to um, give any importance to this liberation from the last uh, Asian authoritarian imperialist power. And they switched in 2019 from Taiwan to China. In the intervening time, there were riots. Uh, then they signed a security agreement between the Solomons and the PRC that allows the deployment of Chinese military personnel to protect Chinese citizens and assets in the Solomon Islands at the request of the Solomon's government or permission of the Solomon's, which will, which will be given because this guy's... And the key thing is uh, they bought off 39 of the 50 members of parliament, which was enough to change the constitution to delay elections. This is what happens. Pro-PRC authoritarian leader is setting the groundwork to delay elections. And if there's a civil war because of it, that's fine with him because his Chinese backers will come in with a military that will keep him in power and he'll never have another election again. What I'm thinking to myself right now, and you know, maybe there's some other viewers that are thinking this as well, is that um, this entropic warfare, as you're describing it, it seems like the U.S. may have engaged in similar type practices in some parts of the world um, that didn't work out very well for it. Beijing wants to set up, an, and you can see it in a place like Solomon's, sort of self-governing, right, like a British colony, but the resources are being extracted. The foreign policy is controlled essentially out of Beijing. Um, the, the locals are suppressing the other locals, that sort, of, that sort of thing. Very much of a just colonial model. And it's an open deference to China. Hmm. So I think the, there were a lot of covert, American covert activities, but they weren't necessarily publicized. And you didn't necessarily want um, you know, the American ambassador going through the center of town on a carpet of rose petals or something like that, you know. But the Chinese do. They want to be acknowledged as being the center of all under heaven. Oh, very interesting. So there's this whole idea of, you know, wanting to establish, frankly, the rest of the world as vassal states, right, to, to the CCP, ultimately. Is that, is that how you see it? Yeah. I, well, yeah. So there's the kind of imperial vassal state, you know, you, you pay your tribute and things like that. But I, I, I really do think, as I see it getting set up in a place like Solomon's, the, the advantage of looking at the Pacific Islands is they're very small. So Solomon's is, I don't know, 350, 400,000 people, something like that. So you, so you can see the mechanisms a lot more clearly. The layers are a lot more, they're thin. Um, so you can see who, who China's targeting, what they're going after, that sort of thing. So you can see, for example, they go after democracy and the judiciary and the media. 
Hmm. So they, they want to make sure that by the time, there's more to the Daniel Sudani story. They tried to uh, do a vote of no confidence. In fact, they're trying to do another one, that sort of thing. And um, I was doing an interview with somebody from that team and they were saying, well, we'll go to the courts. My experience on this is by the time you're saying we'll go to the courts, the Chinese have the courts. They will have, before the big action is taken, they will have tried to block off all of the escape routes. So the judiciary will have been compromised, the media will have been bought off, social media definitely, before the move is, big move is made. Solomon's is, uh, that's the headquarters of the, one of the major fisheries, regional fisheries organizations is there. And uh, the U.S. was doing a patrol with a Coast Guard cutter, anti-illegal fishing patrol, which all the countries in the region say they want. And it was supposed to come into Solomon's to refuel, and it was refused entry. Currently, no foreign military ships are allowed entry into the Solomon's. They're letting the Australians and the New Zealanders in, which tells you something. But American ships can't go in. Uh, British ships can't go in. You know, Indian ships can't go in. I'm sure the Chinese can go in if they want. But they have closed their ports to the country that died on their beaches to liberate them the last time. And this isn't what the people of the Solomons want. Mm. This is effective elite capture. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.